0: Welcome to Marylia Talks, a podcast that discusses mental health and spiritual well-being. Before we jump in, there may be episodes that are particularly sensitive for some listeners, and if that applies, then I hope you'll be able to join me whenever you feel ready and able. Today's episode is on caregivers, and I'm with guest Professor Dale Larson, Professor Larson is Professor of Counselling Psychology at Santa Clara University in Silicon Valley. He's also an award-winning author, a national expert on grief, burnout, and resilience. So I asked him about the challenges that healthcare workers and other caregivers experience and how they can stay well mentally. Let's join in the conversation. How prevalent is burnout among first-line healthcare workers? How prevalent is it?
1: Um, it's very prevalent.
0: Mm.
1: World Health Organization has now recognized it as a phenomenon of great mm-hmm. importance. Um, in in a recent interview, the president of the National Academy of Medicine said that before COVID, about forty percent, up maybe up to fifty percent of doctors and nurses were reporting burnout, distress, and anxiety. Since COVID, the figures have risen to seventy to ninety yeah. percent. Now it's hard to get exact figures on yeah. this, but a high percentage. Of health professionals, I think helping professionals in general experience significant amounts of burnout. And this is a real issue for us in today's world because we need helping professionals who are not burned out to help everyone who is suffering.
0: Exactly, so what are the unique challenges then, like psychosocial risk factors? what are the challenges that caregivers uh, encounter um, that actually impacts their mental health?
1: Well, doing this kind of work asks a lot of us. It asks mm-hmm. us to be present to suffering, it asks us to be pretty vulnerable because we are human beings doing this work. There are extreme demands that are placed on helping professionals. I'm thinking mainly doctors, nurses, social workers, clergy who are working with people in oncology, hospice, and and general medicine. Um, And there's so many uh, difficult experiences that people have doing this work. There was a survey of -of end-of-life professionals, over a thousand people asking, what are your major stressors? And they reported two things, which I, I found very interesting. Number one was they thought over work, too, much, too many demands, yeah. number one stressor, which is not surprising. In COVID, things were absolutely outrageous. Mm-hmm. And just recently, there was a report of a, in the United States of 100,000 nurses leaving the profession. So that's a pretty good sign. Oh, wow. we're not. But their number two stressor, which I found really intriguing because of my own background and interest, is that they said, we don't have time to grieve. So those professionals working with dying patients or with everyday patients who become ill and die, um, they found the lack of opportunity to grieve. So that's why we have more emphasis now uh, on how do we uh, address that need? How, how can we provide opportunities for people to talk about their experiences? As caregivers in these situations, we have Schwartz rounds in healthcare. We have various efforts to kind of build in opportunities to talk about our experiences. If you're working in a high mortality saturation environment, how do you take Mm. time as a team or as an individual to grieve the loss of this patient for for whom you were in a very intimate relationship?
0: So, So let's take it maybe back a little bit in the sense of what are the signs that a caregiver whether they're professional or even mm. voluntary, a, voluntary caregiver because they're caring for a loved one, mm. what are the signs that they are actually facing burnout?
1: Well, it, burnout, there are three things. In addition to burnout, we have secondary traumatization and we have moral distress. So let me talk about burnout, secondary traumatization, and moral distress. So burnout, first of all, it's hard to recognize in oneself. So there's, there are studies showing that mm. people don't recognize burnout in themselves uh, but their colleagues do recognize it in them. And and it's really dramatic um, kind of finding. But how do we recognize it? Well, burnout has three major characteristics. The first is demoralization. And that is that inner experience of I can't, I'm not doing well at doing good. I'm kind of beating myself up. I'm not feeling good about myself. Mm-hmm. It's feel helpless it's like a learned helplessness experiment that martin seligman did with the rats you just can't do what you want to do so the highly motivated person is more likely to experience this because they're most frustrated Mm. when they can't make a difference Mm. in their work the second characteristic is a little bit of a distancing that one experiences you develop a kind of cynicism oh i have the the cancer in room 238 and And you start to find a way to keep yourself emotionally distant because you're you 're burned out you know, it 's like a bright flame is more likely to burn out that 's the idealism burnout relationship mm-hmm. and you and you start to pull back and and not be caring and then you really dislike yourself because I got into this work as a physician as a social worker as a clergy member, as a nurse. As a psychotherapist, because I'm a caring person and now I'm not caring. So that is a downward spiral. Mm-hmm. The, the final characteristic, which is almost a defining characteristic of burnout, is exhaustion. The emotional, physical, psychological exhaustion. I mean, it's not because you're doing more physically. It's that it's emotionally demanding. So this is what burnout looks like. It's it's that from the inside. And then you have vicarious or secondary traumatization that you experience because you're talking to people who are traumatized. If you're talking to a someone whose child has died, they're traumatized and this trauma can be transmitted to you. And that's where empathy is challenging because empathy is a double-edged sword. It's the thing that makes you a little bit more vulnerable, but it also can make you a great helper. And you have to find a way to be in an emotional relationship and and emotionally balanced in order to do this work without burning out. I I call that the challenge of caring. And then we have moral distress. So in COVID, we had so many examples of this where people were triaging when you have to make a decision about who to attend to in an emergency room, who to give this life support to some very difficult decisions were being made. And in general, we feel like we're not doing enough, or our organization's not providing the kind of care we want, or our team isn't doing very well with our patients. That leads to moral distress, and that can lead to what I call helper secrets. All these experiences, this trifecta, troubling trifecta, burnout, secondary traumatization, and moral distress can lead to People concealing their experience because I don't want others to know that I'm burned out. You're looking over at the other professional across the table and you say... They're, they're doing so well. They seem like they're in control and managing this so well. And yet I'm feeling terrible. And that's what mm-hmm. leads to many people leaving the field. And undoubtedly, those 100,000 nurses, many of them were feeling the same thing. Um, just not right for me. But if they had gotten the support they needed in those difficult moments, if they had an organization in which they felt like their mission division process, was in alignment with the mission division process of their organization team and they got the support they needed. I don't think they'd be burning out.
0: Mm, Very true. So I want to come on to your book. You've written a book called The Helper's Journey, Empathy, Mm -hmm. Compassion, and the Challenge of Caring. And that was written for caregivers and it won a book of the year award from the American Journal of Nursing. Can you Mm -hmm. tell me about that?
1: Yeah, yeah, well, it starts with, uh, it goes from the inside out, if you will. It begins with the inner experiences like some of those we're talking about. What's, what's our mission in the work? Well, how did we get here in the first place? We call those the mission moments when we discover, well, this is why I'm here. We don't have them every day necessarily, but we learn from them, well, this is what really brought me in. This is what keeps can keep me in. This is what can nourish me and, and make me realize why I'm here in the first place. And then we talk about um, stress management because we need to find a way to manage our stress. We need to find a way to be emotionally involved without burning out. We need to learn about self-care and um, reappraisal of stressful situations and mindfulness and self-compassion. So I write about all these new ideas that we have in psychology, a lot of them coming from positive psychology. And that's kind of exciting because to realize we can do something about our stress is very very important to realize mm-hmm. the the fact we can make a difference you know resilience is not a, a trait really it's it's an outcome we can affect that outcome my Angelo said you cannot control all the events that happen to you but you can decide not to be reduced by them Albert Bandura was sitting in this office with me that I'm in right now and he's the person who developed the idea of self-efficacy I think one of the foremost psychologists of the 20th century and I said well, what would you tell him? all the doctors, nurses, therapists uh, were struggling out there. He'd say, don't let them wear you down. And he, he quoted a, this, it's not really Latin, but legitimi non-carborundum, which means essentially don't let the bastards <laughs> wear you down. So it's important to realize we can do something about it. Then I talk about self-concealment and that's a big research area. Now my scale has been used in 15 countries and there are 220 studies. Now looking at the tendency, to self-conceal and how that causes us problems especially as helping professionals and leads to helper secrets i write about helper secrets which is another thing i I focused on a lot in my career all these troubling experiences we have that we don't disclose to others but then can kind of corrode from within then i go to the interpersonal realm and look at um well how can we communicate more effectively how can we develop a person centered relationship what makes that work what's at the heart of that um to put our compassion to work and with the patients we're caring for and then team issues so focus on what what makes for a healthy team, what do we know about team functioning, and and how can we get our mission division process working, you know, within the team. And increase our effectiveness and the compassion that we're providing, you know, in our care. And then finally, I end with a, a bigger statement about compassion in the world and how do all these ideas relate to what's happening in our society and in the world, largely looking at all the developments that have happened recently and how we can take some of the ideas from psychology and put them to work and creating a more compassionate society. So it was an exciting thing to write. I was really glad that it got recognition. He's
0: Sounds um, Mm. comprehensive in terms of what it covers. You mentioned Mm. healthcare workers, how they need to find that balance in terms Mm. of still being emotionally involved, but without getting burnt out. And when you were talking about that, it it brought a picture to my mind. And Mm. so, when my mum passed away, for example, who broke the news was um, a nurse in the hospital. So, I was in the hospital with a nurse, and it was obvious that she'd been crying, and she was in the room with me, and I had to tease out of her what happened because because maybe she'd been sent there to keep me company or to hold the fort until the doctor came to share the news. And so it was basically when the nurse shared the news, I knew because of her reaction, because she'd been crying and because she dare not even look me in the face. Um, and I felt she was very emotionally involved, you know, and it had okay. upset her. However, when the doctor came to share the news, it was all very mechanical, very factual. And so there was a big difference between those two healthcare workers and basically how they experienced express themselves or how involved they were when it came to empathy and being attached yeah and there's a part of me that actually really valued or appreciated the nurse because she cared you know um it was my mom she cared and she, it, it bothered her just oh it concerned her and she and it showed in terms of how she was um so back to the point that you raised about being emotionally evolved how can a healthcare worker be emotionally involved and protect themselves. They're there to care. And if something traumatic has happened, it can impact them. So how mm-hmm. can they remain healthy?
1: Yeah, Mary Lab, this is really a great illustration. Your personal experience really illustrates so many things. So um, yeah, how can we do that? First of all, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. The nurse with tears is an interesting example. And then the doctor Coming in and being more just rational, and, and it's highly likely that the nurse had a much deeper relationship with mm-hmm. your mom. Nurses are on the front lines; they're caring for patients day to day. She had your mother was obviously special to her in some way, and she had real feelings. And this is something that we, you know, to the idea that and we, we know that helping professionals, when they report, especially end of life professionals, mm-hmm. say that you know the number one stressor is overworked, The number two stressor is no time to grieve. So that yeah. that nurse was was grieving. There now the the question is okay how can she do that in a way that she's not feeling shame and that she's able to um, still be helpful to you I have a, a metaphor that's been used a lot by people over the years because it, I think it just makes sense in a way the helpers pit that we don't want to fall into the helpers pit as as helpers because we don't want to identify with the losses of the people we're caring for and we have to find a way to keep our emotional balance so when Mary Leo walks in the room I'm able to communicate with her and you saw her the grief that she was experiencing, it was for you, it meant something that's special. She was caring for my mother and that's beautiful. i last, like one time I was lecturing to 5,000 oncology nurses all at once and I, I said, how many of you have had a tear in your eye when you're working with patients? Every single person in the room raised their hand. Right. Everyone. I couldn't see maybe every single per, but it was the it whole. Seemed, whole well, yeah,
0: it seemed like it. So, yeah.
1: I said, for how many of you did the patient or family member run out of the room saying, "My my nurse is having a feeling. I, I can't deal with it. No one raised mm-hmm. their hand. It's We are human beings working with other human beings. But the trick is we don't want to fall into the helper's pit and then have all the focus shift to ourselves. Yeah, that that's self focused and that's not helpful to the people we're caring for. We have to maintain that empathic relationship. So she had to also be there for you and that's key. So we've got to find a way to be emotionally involved. I've devoted a lot of my career to try and understand this experience I write about extensively. How can we be emotionally involved? How can we nurture our compassion and find a way to express that and, and without burning out and to help people live with hope in a world in which loss is inescapable? That's kind of the challenge of caring. That is the challenge caring? So uh, I think we need technical expertise and we need relational expertise mm. from our caregivers, and that's across the board. Whether it's a psychotherapist, a social worker, nurse, doctor, chiropractor, whatever, whoever it is, we need both, and to have really truly compassionate, person-centered care. Mm.
0: And Dale, <laughs> like a lot of what you've you've mentioned or certainly touched on and referenced from your book, was just about like teamwork. Mm. And, you know, even having that space for grieving or um, professionals. So I see that there are a lot of challenges for the healthcare sector when it comes to ensuring that the the healthcare worker is able to get back to being well or staying well mentally, because a lot of those issues could be systematic or cultural within that, the the organisation. So yes, they may try, but the fact of, in terms of the number of Hours that they're doing, or maybe the scheduling, or what they're encountering in terms of, you know, um, patients. So, and it's probably not a response you're able to give because it's going to be so detailed and it's probably in your book. But are there ways you can share what the key things someone would be able to protect themselves?
1: Well, first, it one of the key findings in the burnout field, Chris Manslack at Berkeley had uh, this understanding of burnout, which is it's not bad apples, it's bad cakes that the apples are in. It's the system mm-hmm. we're in. I don't think those 100,000 nurses who yeah. were, left the field recently left because there was something wrong with them. We, exactly. we couldn't have predicted them leaving the field by giving them a personality measure before they entered the field. We could predict them leaving the field by looking at the organizations they're in and the lack of support that they've received. Mm-hmm. Healthcare has become brutal in so many ways, in terms of not providing enough support for healthcare workers, and that's a reality. And we are struggling, at least here in the United States. I'm sure true in in England as well. I have spent quite a bit of time in England at the various hospice programs at St. Christopher's, lecturing, and um, and I know that these are universal kinds of situations. But in our system, which is very often for profit and driven by bottom line, bottom line. Is not taking care of our health professionals. So the bottom line is making more money, and you know, we've seen that with hospice care becoming more and more for-profit here in the United States. It's coming a little bit of a, uh, an issue. Not that all for-profit organizations are bad or all nonprofit good, but whenever your you know your mission is to make more money versus you're making more money to fulfill your mission, you have problems because you think, well, should we provide this extra service for our patients or the community? No, we're not going to. do that because that would cost us money. We don't have to do it. I'm not an expert on all that, but I just have my observations. But I do have expert knowledge about the stressors that health professionals and caregivers generally are dealing with. And we need to provide for family caregivers as well. In the United States, we're trying to get some mobilization of of national policies that would be supporting family caregivers. We'll provide tens of billions of dollars of support for their loved ones. I mean, 50, just huge numbers of people supporting their loved ones who have Alzheimer's numbers and different infirmities. So we need to do more to support those who are helping us with our conditions, our situations, our suffering. Mm-hmm. And I hope that the future holds more promise in that regard.
0: Sure. Like you mentioned about mm-hmm. COVID, how that made a significant increase in terms of um, healthcare workers leaving the profession um, mm-hmm. pre-COVID and post-COVID. Um, there's that significant difference. So actually, are there any specific Signs that, as a caregiver, it shows that it's because they've been traumatized by COVID. Is there anything in particular that shows that it's because of that traumatic period?
1: Well, actually, we have now a, a psychologist. We always develop measures. So the first thing we do is we say, can we measure this, and yeah. then we try to develop a the scale. There's actually a, a COVID stress syndrome scale, okay. now. and here are the here are the items: fear of contamination. So think about oh. you know the people yeah. who are really high on these items. I'm really afraid of being contaminated. You know, this is true in general. I mean, COVID has not gone away and it's still a reality in our lives and will be, it seems forever. I have an acronym um, that people will find humorous probably scared situational coronavirus activated relational disorder but it's this this you know fear that we have that when you're encountering anybody who's new in your life are they test have they tested did they mm-hmm. this is put a little barrier between us and others so i call it scared but fear of contamination, worry about finances because you're worried about losing money. These are the items from the scale. Xenophobic fear that foreigners are spreading the virus. Traumatic stress symptoms associated with direct or vicarious traumatic exposure. Compulsive checking and reassurance seeking. Um, Profound and uh, pervasive experiences of grief, loss, and trauma are, are, I think, really reshaping how we live, die, and grieve now and in the future. And this COVID stress syndrome, not sure what that'll look. Like when it's administered to tens of thousands of people, if it is, but but some of those elements we can all relate to. I think you know this COVID has affected us all. It's changed Mm -hmm. our relationships. I know I'm always thinking, "Am I safe?" Mm -hmm. It's it's just it's really taken away a sense of security. I never thought about going into a crowded room as any kind of threatening situation i'm going to a conference soon where i'll be with hundreds of people i don't know how comfortable i feel standing at the boot line you know with a bunch of people i don't know they tested so this is the kind of anxiety that i know people go oh no i'm not worried about that anymore but um i don't know in my own life i've had six friends, all actually coming back from Europe on long-term flights who've developed COVID, and a couple of them have long COVID now. So it's not gone away.
0: Mm. So those items that you mentioned um, in the scale, if there's an increase in them, um, then there's a chance that it's because um, the individual has been traumatized by COVID. So how, how could they then cope with that or deal with that, address it effectively?
1: Well, I think we have to have exposure whenever we have any kind of anxiety issue. So I think it is good that we we find ways to begin segueing back to the normal, but we're in a new normal, but yeah. segueing to this new normal reality that we're in. So I think exposure is good to find safe contexts where you can be without a mask. Like most people now I know on airlines are not wearing masks. So there's a way that that's really good. There's another way that it's a little bit brazen because I know people listening might be saying, oh my gosh, he's so was stuck in this, you know, COVID fear. It's a reality still. And it's, something we have to, to pay attention to. But we don't want to be overwhelmed by it. We don't want to be panic stricken. We don't want to score super high on the COVID stress syndrome. We we have to find a way to adjust. So it's going to be part of our future that we find a way to be overcoming the, these anxieties. And I think we do that through exposure as our principle in psychotherapy. So we find ways to reappraise. We check out the realities of how prevalent is the COVID right now, you know, right now, the what's going on in my area and what's going on generally. And I think then we find a way through this.
0: And um, specifically talking about those caregivers that focus on end of life, there will be some that are in positions of harboring secrets. So it could be, for example, the, the load is on one particular caregiver, rather than um, others in the family, and there could be um, resentment that's felt by that caregiver. It could be self-doubt, maybe um, in terms of the fact that they feel that they haven't given perhaps the level of quality care that they could have, or mm-hmm. maybe they've made a mistake, so perhaps there's some secrets that the caregiver may be harboring uh-huh. when um, mm-hmm. in an end of life um, support scenario. What can what can they do to help themselves?
1: Well, I, I think you've outlined some really important ones. The resentment. What about me is very is one of the categories when I mm-hmm. do research on helper secrets or caregiver secrets. It's a very common one. What about me? I'm caring for others. Also, the you know feeling these self-doubts, like I'm not good enough or I'm not caring enough. So it can go both ways. And it's very important to to recognize these, which I term helper's secrets. And you get stuck in the fallacy of uniqueness, the belief that I alone am having trouble with this. And there are some secrets that we possess or other secrets that possess us. So some of these can really drive you out of the helping professions. If you're not sharing them with others, if you're not normalizing those experiences, you're not finding a way to share them with somebody and to and and also to get feedback from others who are experiencing the same kinds of things. So I think the key thing they can do, any any of us can do with these kinds of inner experiences where they get kind of stuck in our uh, echo chamber. And we end up feeling bad about ourselves and we have shame because, oh, my gosh, nobody else would feel this way. The fallacy of uniqueness, it's me, I'm um, unique, it's my failure, it's something about who I am. No, it's about the situation. It's about this environment that I'm in, these demands that are placed on me, this lack of support, etc. And so they, they need to find a way. I think your question is, what What can they do? They can find a way to explore these inner experiences to, to have self-compassion. i like Kristen Neff has written extensively about this, but what Carl Rogers also wrote about and taught about beautiful was one of my teachers and inspirations in how to accept ourselves. When we can accept ourselves, we can change. We have to accept these inner experiences, listen to them. You know, burnout is a. In general, it's a badge of honor. You don't burn out unless you're on fire. So mm-hmm. one of the, the idealistic people are more likely to burn out because they're they're on fire. Mm-hmm. They want to make a difference, and when I can't make a difference, I feel so frustrated. Yeah. Actually, we found that high commitment nurses are really not bothered by this stupid things that other people are bothered by, like, you know, the paper's not in the right place, etc. You know, it doesn't really bother them. But it's when the quality of care is compromised mm-hmm. that they really are suffering. Mm-hmm. So that's that's an important point, I think. So when we, we have to realize that it's not just me, it's not all about me, it's the situation I'm in. And then when we get that new perspective, we've got to see what we can do to change that situation in this organization or in our personal lives, helping lives. We have to find a way to find balance emotionally in the moment we have to find a way to take care of ourselves and set limits and do things for ourselves outside of our helping work like about vacations and about taking time for yourself to do things that are nourishing and increasing that self-compassion and increasing your ability to have the resources that you need when you are going into these helping contexts so that you can really give what is demanded of you and there's a lot that's asked of you that these Helping situations ask a lot of us. They ask us to be present to suffering. They ask us to be vulnerable. They ask us to be teammates with people Mm -hmm. when we're used to being, uh, lone rangers, solo kind of, you know, helpers. Now I've got to work on a team and work interdependently. There are a lot of issues that, you know, I've talked about and written about. But these things that are so central in and helping.
0: And, and lastly, mm-hmm. there may be someone listening who is a caregiver that's struggling. Would you like mm-hmm. to share anything with them directly?
1: Well, I'd like to first. I'd like to thank you for your work, and I really hope that that is experience is really taken in. Because I've dedicated my life to supporting people like you. I have a tiny clinical practice, but most of my work has been researching and trying to understand what's going on here, and how can the things that we're learning in psychology help you do what you're doing, what matters to you. I would say take time to understand how you got here, what matters to you. You know, what is your mission and work. One of the things we know now is that compassion could be one of the best buffers for stress. I know that sounds
0: mm-hmm.
1: not right because we think, oh no, the more compassionate person is more likely to burn out. No, mm-hmm. actually compassion, balanced emotional involvement and compassion is an antidote to burnout. Empathy is an antidote to shame. Compassion is an antidote to stress because it enlivens you and it, you find a deeper sense of happiness. There's a term that is very old. It's a Greek term, eudaimonia. And eudaimonia, is a deeper kind of happiness. It comes when we live our lives with our values and the meanings that really matter to us, actual, activated, actuated. And I would like you just to reflect on that, on your helping journey, that what you're doing has meaning. It is, it's going to reverberate far into the future. Long after you're gone and I'm gone, um, in the families that follow the patients you're caring for, they will be sharing the, this goodness that you're sharing with them. And, and then those children will share it with the next generation. So all this goes on far into the future. And so feel that for yourself and and also recognize, hey, this situation is challenging. It's not all about me. It's not my failure. It's that I have to find a way to navigate, you know, a difficult world of helping, but one that is deeply meaningful and can have so much significance and such a legacy uh, for you and your life. So thank you for your work from the bottom of my heart. Well,
0: Professor Dale Larson, thank you for those words of encouragement to caregivers uh, particularly those that may be struggling. Thanks for joining me on Mary Liar Talks and for those that are listening, stay well and hope you join me next time Being a caregiver can be overwhelming at times so here are a few spiritual wellness tips you can meditate on. The first is Matthew chapter 25 verse 40 which reads And the King will answer them, Don't you know When you cared for one of the least of these, my little ones, my true brothers and sisters, you demonstrated love for me. Another is Psalm 23 verses 1-4, to which reads, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We'll end with First Peter chapter 5, verse 7, which reads, Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. Thank you for listening. Do follow and join me again next time on Mary Laya Talks Beyond the Smile.